Hello, my dear, dear friend. It's your old pal, Timmy C. Just recording the introduction to today's chat with an author. Um, I always feels, I always feels like, I mean, it's not, but I always feel slightly uh, dehumanising and reductive when I kick off talking about an author by awards they've won or how many sales that their books have done because of course it's not about that you know we've had authors on the show who've not yet had their books out and so they've got effectively zero sales and they're just as important to me as the huge best sellers we've had on the show also the re the re- main reason I wanted to have today's guest on was because I really 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 love his books like I just wanted to know how he did it. Um, it just so happens that I'm not alone in having enjoyed them. Uh, he sold over 5 million copies worldwide in, I think, 42 different countries, which is is amazing, right? And it's also very... It's also very nice. It's also very encouraging when you read his books and go, oh, yeah, I can kind of see that. Yeah, that makes sense. This is good. Um, so today's guest is the Australian fantasy author Garth Nix. He has done a whole bunch of books. You know, he uh, he claims he's not especially prolific, but he certainly has got an impressive output behind him of some fantastic titles. Um. And we talk a bit about his background, how he got into writing and fell in love with books in the first place. Um, and he really, he put the put the hours in out of love. But, um, you know, it's quite the training montage. And we talk about all sorts of stuff. I should say, just to be clear, if you're not a fantasy writer, I know like most people who listen are not fantasy writers. Although we talk about genre, although we, of course, go into... Um, his specialist subject really what we're talking about is stories and and you know to a certain extent fantasy is just kind of uh this may be an an apt metaphor given um the necromancy that features in his uh, sabriel books um the, the the kind of fantasy is sometimes just every other genre with the with the flesh stripped off right it's just down to the bone it's just the skeleton of, you know, it's like a, a person wants something and they go and get it or try to get it, but things get in the way. So I think there's really interesting stuff for whatever your genre you're writing in or you're interested in. I think there's really, really, really interesting and useful stuff for you to glean out of this. But if you like fantasy, then this is going to be particularly great for you. And we, we get down into all sorts of stuff from difference between sort of plotting and discovery writing through to what makes a good first page and is it okay to write a prologue a prologue's bad now or can you write them um and through all of it i just think god he just comes across as this genuinely passionate really knowledgeable he, he worked in publishing uh, for years so he's got this background in publishing that he's able to bring some of that expertise and knowledge and awareness of how the industry works to it um 
just very down to earth. You're going to hear he's just very nice. And it was really, really a real thrill to chat to him, but also very useful, um, which sounds a bit mercenary. But there you go. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you're going to have a whale of a time now. If you enjoy listening to him, then of course you can go into the show notes or you can go to my website, tinkledpert.co.uk, and I've put in a few links to some of his books that you might like to... I guess they're all the starting points in the various series that he's put out. So if you want to try one of them, you can just click through. Of course, you could go to your local indie bookshop or Bricks and Mortar store. I'd love that. I'd be thrilled by that. But if you uh, want to get something straight away, I'll put some links in the show notes and you can click through and um, grab one of those for yourself. Or, of course, your local library. Do patronise your local library. I don't mean patronise your local library as in talk down to them. Um, you know, that's just mean support your local library by being a patron of them. Um, also... Um, if you'd like to support me and you're interested to hear what I write about and you've got to listen to what a professional Garth Nix is because at the very end he does put in a plug for my new book The Ice House so I was particularly I was particularly chuffed that he managed to get a reference in there right at the end incredibly generous of him but um, you'll see in that there's a link in the show notes uh, um, and on my website to um buy my novel The Honours and also pre-order The Ice House, a new fantasy novel by me which is coming out in May 2019. Um, last week was uh, The Honours week so I'm not going to go on about it anymore uh, except say be great if you pre-ordered. Uh, some I'm going to start, if people want to let me know if they've pre-ordered it, uh, I'll start um, reading out names in these little introductions to the show i can just like give some shout outs to people who've pre-ordered i think that'd be fun someone started using the hashtag roads to 1500 because we've worked out that um if i can get if a quarter of the people who listen to the podcast in a week that which is 1500 all pre-order the book it'll be a bestseller in this first week someone i think possibly facetiously possibly with beautiful um, sincerity um, use the term road to 1500 so um, if let me know if you've pre-ordered I'll give you a shout out on the podcast and we can count up that what now seems like an obscenely um, an, an, an obscenely hubristic number to try and aim for I don't know what I'm doing but um, we can count down together <laughs> And there's links there. Thank you so much. You're such a lovely, lovely bunch. I should also say before I hand you over to me chatting to Garth um, and you get to hear all the stuff he talks about. We have a nice long chat as well. He was so generous. I should also say just as a public service announcement that um, on the previous episode of the show, I told an anecdote in which I claimed I had punched out a luminary of the publishing industry, of the UK publishing industry, an exec, um, on the basis that he had insulted you, my listeners, uh, telling me that um, you would never pre-order my novel. Um, I just want to make it clear, because I had, uh, uh, worryingly, several emails of support um, <laughs> that I was, I was joking. I suppose, I, I, I flatter myself that it was deadpan, but I suppose it just didn't wasn't very funny. Um, and several people seem to have taken me at my word that, I punched someone for saying 
for suggesting that um, I wasn't able to to bilk money out of you, essentially. I just, <laughs> it was a joke. It wasn't a very funny one. just want to say I would never hit anyone. Probably not even in self-defence. I mean, don't take that as an invitation to mug me, but um, I'm really, really, really non-violent person and um, I couldn't punch someone hard enough to knock them spark out and think they might be dead. And if I had assaulted someone and run a- ran away... And I have been doing my, and I've only been doing this podcast for like two years. The statute of limitations wouldn't have run out on that offence. You should, if if someone discloses a serious assault on a podcast, don't encourage them. Report it to the police. <laughs> What's wrong with you? wrong with you it's a bad thing it's not a reasonable response to someone insulting someone's podcast to punch them (laughs) so they're bleeding on the floor come on guys i don't i i have i accidentally started a cult i didn't imagine myself that charismatic i really didn't but here we are um so i'm gonna hand you over to someone now who really does deserve your admiration uh love and uh unquestioning loyalty uh Please enjoy this chat between me and the author, Garth Nix. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers and for readers and for anyone who loves stories. Now, I am always enthusiastic when the shows start. I I never come on and go, well, I've got an all right guest today and, well, I suppose we're going to just have to muddle through. They're not my cup of tea, but you might like them. Uh, I I always feel enthusiastic, um, but I'm feeling particularly enthusiastic today because um, I am, and of course, by extension, you are going to be uh, chatting with Garth Nix. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Tim. Um, it's really lovely to uh, speak to you at last and, uh, and and get to talk about writing. I'm I'm really um, I'll try and kind of contain my excitement, but I'm I'm very excited. <laughs> well, we at least I'm on the other side of the world, so you know I have I have a safe distance from your excitement, you know. So uh, via the miracle of uh, modern technology, it's 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 wonderful, and, and my ex- my excitement um, being. A um a fairly heavy cold, so I think you're. <laughs> you're oh, nicely... I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, that's it's, I'm, just as well we're we're not doing this in person. In that case, we'd be uh, keeping our distance from sneezes and so on. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to start off by asking a question that I ask all authors, um, and you can sort of interpret it however you like. But I just wanted wondered if you could t- tell us a little bit about where you come from, how you started out, and how you first got the sense that stories were something special? That's a good question. Um, And it's always interesting to look back because my whole life has been infused with stories, reading them, writing them, making them up. From a very, very early age, uh, I was always very keen on both reading and writing stories. I think um, libraries also played a very important part in that, and and my parents, of course, in their provision of of books. I I grew up in Canberra, which is the federal capital of Australia, 
And when I was growing up there in the late 60s and 70s, it was a very small city. Uh, it was called the Bush Capital. It only had a couple of hundred thousand people. But it was this weird sort of country town-sized place that had the federal government grafted on top of it. So it had all these public institutions as well as uh, far, you know, far more cultural, far, far more cultural institutions, educational institutions, and so on than you'd expect from a small city of that size, which was an enormous benefit to me. Um, and I think one of the most formative things was in fact a little library that uh, was a children's specialist children's library that was located between my home and my school, my primary school. And I would stop there every afternoon and get new books and hand my other books back. And the librarians would order in books for me. So I would read the first book of a series, for example, and then they would, and because it was a very small library, they wouldn't have the sequels, but they had the whole library network to, to call upon. Uh, and they would bring these books in for me. So I think from really from about sort of grade two onwards, I was there every weekday getting, getting new books to read overnight. And I've always been a fast reader and I suspect it goes back to that, that early experience. And my parents were very supportive as well. They were both readers and, uh, and, and would just give me books. So I had a very book saturated early life. I did lots of other things as well. But books are always very much part of it. And I wanted to emulate the books I read from a very early age. Um, there's, there's various pieces of uh, juvenilia that I do not want ever to be seen uh, <laughs> upon the world. There, there, there is some that I have in fact shared um, because it's not too embarrassing. But there's plenty of other stuff that I definitely do not want shared. And, and it, all, it all goes back to loving stories and, and wanting to make my own from from that very early early time can you remember a couple of those sort of first worlds that you were reading about or those series that you were immer immersing yourself in that kind of yeah yeah uh, and uh, uh and in fact i try and collect them these days i try and collect the identical editions that i read uh from that particular library and from from later libraries uh, i'm not really a book collector well, I'm a book. I'm a book buyer and a, a book hoarder, I suppose. But but I'm not really a book collector in the sense of seeking out particular editions because of uh, their you know, certain characteristics or because of their their value. Um, ex except that I suppose I am because I do look for ones that were the same editions, have the, the same editions that I read, the same covers uh, that I held in my nine year old hands or or ten year old hands. Um, they include a lot of fantasy and science fiction, uh, particularly that you know, written f for children. Um, some of the authors that I first encountered uh, in that sort of classic seven, eight, nine upwards uh, age would include uh, Dinah Wynne-Jones, Alan Garner, Ursula Le Guin, uh, Tolkien, um, actually with The Lord of the Rings first, not The Hobbit, I think, which was read to me by my, my mother. Um, lots of, of American science fiction, because my, my father uh, is a scientist. He travelled in the US. He was always working there, and he'd bring back lots of uh, American paperbacks, uh, which, was, which was also fantastic. So people like uh, Robert Heinlein, um, Andre Norton, Isaac Asimov, uh, all, all those 
sort of classic science fiction writers of, of that era. Um, and I guess one of the th- curious things about being an Australian of that era, uh, I was born in 1963, uh, so through the sort of 60s and 70s, is that there wasn't a great deal of Australian publishing, but we had a curious mix of both British and American books. So I, I find even to this day that there's a lot of uh, many American classic writers, like, for example, Lloyd Alexander uh, and his Chronicles of Predane, which are you know, brilliant fantasy novels. But a lot of lot of British readers don't know those books, whereas they're huge classics to American readers. Uh, but we, we kind of got both, uh, which was an enormous benefit. And, and then some of our own as well. Um, but it was a relatively small amount in that period, which, which, which later... Uh, of course, the Australian writing and publishing scene grew enormously uh, through the, the 70s and 80s and, and onwards to, to this day. That's, I have to say, like, the, 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 the names that you're... So you must have... <laughs> I'm just amazed at, like, the kind of... Because I, I was reading... At that age, I was reading, like, super... Super Mario Choose Your Own Adventure books and stuff. I'm afraid, well, I, well like... I was, I, but I was reading them as well. I, I've always, I've always read everything, and I'm, I'm a great believer in in reading lots and lots of different things. Um, I think it's very important to, uh, as a writer, to to read very widely indeed. So, as a child, I, I read comics. I read, um, as well as the fantasy and science fiction. I read historical novels. I read thrillers. I mean, actually, everything that came my way to be honest um so i think that's that's an important part of 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 becoming a writer is is the the depth and breadth of reading why why do you think it's important to read uh widely and kind of be uh, omnivorous when it comes to genre and style and things like that well i think there's a couple of reasons one of them is that if you, for example, want to be a fantasy writer, but you only read fantasy, probably when it comes to your own work, you're, you'll end up being more imitative than not. And you'll probably end up imitating whoever you like the most. And I think it's, it's kind of like not, not harvesting enough ingredients to make something tasty, perhaps, or, or your own. You, you, need to, you need to reach out more broadly. So, so I think that's that's one reason is in the shaping of your own style and the way you tell stories, uh, you you need to expose yourself to as many different kinds of storytelling as possible, uh, and and kinds of content as well, and I and I think the other thing is you you don't know what you don't know until you until you read something, you, and you might read something that shows you an entirely different way to tell a story. It might be something that tells you shows you how to use punctuation you've not used before or a uh, elements of style or, or prose that you you haven't you haven't uh, realized could be used in a particular way and often you you won't encounter them necessarily unless you do read widely uh, and also I think non-fiction is very important too because uh, there's so many stories that are true uh, in history and in biography and in the natural world and all all of those things you want to take you want to be able to draw on them and take small details and little facts and snippets of story and and use them yourself and you won't know about them if you if you don't if you don't read widely 
so I think that that's that's the that's the the basic reason is it's really just part of equipping yourself. I think the the more you read, uh, the the more you you will be able to find the things that you want to use yourself, and you'll find new things and find new ways to to work. Um, so I do think it's it is very important. I mean, I'm not saying if you want to write thrillers, don't read the biggest thriller writers. I think you should do that as well. Um, and I'm not saying force yourself to read things which repulse you or uh, uh, you know bore you to death, um, because there are so many interesting things in the world. You don't need to read the boring things or the things that don't work for you. You can still find whatever they have to offer somewhere else. So this process you're describing, this kind of like great, you know, in inspir- I guess it's like literally inspiration, right? If inspiration means like breathing in, you're like inhaling all these stories and books. And I just wanted to know when, when the breathing out started, when you started to sort of write your, when, when you started to write, you know, stories. Well, I started very early on. And, and in fact, there's a, there's a, a little piece of my my travelling repertoire when I'm talking to audiences. I don't always do this, but because of course it is a repertoire, I pick and choose the the different things that I do. But one of the things I often do is produce a little book that I made when I was five or six, and I call it my my first published book. I mean, it's a self published book because yeah. it's a piece of piece of paper that's been folded in four and stapled in the middle, and it's called Stories by Garth Nix, and I read my first self-published story to to the audience which is is a real story um i don't the the book i bring with me is 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 often a um a facsimile made the day before uh because but i still actually do have the real one uh which my parents kept amongst all all my sort of paraphernalia and it, it, it just it only had a few stories in it and one of them was a story called the coin shower which is, it's a very short story, but I, I always carry on as if it's going to be long. Um, yeah. and, it, it, and it goes like this. It's just, a boy went outside. It started raining coins. He picked them up. The end. So, mm. But it is a complete story. Um, and so that's, it's hard to pin down when I, I made that. My, my mother thinks five or six. Um, so somewhere around then I was already thinking about stories. And also I was wanting to make books. Uh, and... I wrote stories in, in primary school. I wrote them in high school. I think the other very important thing um, which I did from the beginning of high school, from, from grade seven, end of grade seven, was that I started playing Dungeons and Dragons, which had actually just come out, basically. Um, it, was, it was brand new. No one had ever heard of it. Uh, and, I, and I saw it in a game shop and this little white box with three very slim booklets in it. And I convinced some of my friends to play, but I was the games master. I was the, the DM. And uh, we played D&D for years. And of course, that's all about making stories. And I spent an enormous amount of effort and time on, uh, you know, gazetteers of my imaginary world. Oh, so you, so making... you wrote your own, you weren't just doing pre-published no, adventures no. then. You, you would make no. a story for them. Yeah. Yes, in fact, I did almost no. I mean, there were well, there were no, there basically were no pre-published adventures to begin with, and then there were still very few. Uh, and I wanted to make my own. So, though, though interestingly, and in fact, just talking to you has made me realise this: 
the world that I created for the campaign that we ran all through, I ran all through high school, I've never actually used in, in any stories beyond that, which, yeah. is, which is kind of interesting. It's like, oh, I've done that. That's that. It's done. Um, though elements of it, I'm sure I could probably go back to that material and, and find elements that I've, I've, I've reused. But, but the whole setting of it and the place names and so on, I, I didn't use... Uh, for stories later on, which is which is interesting. Um, do, what do you, you can you just reflect on? Do you, do you have a suspicion about why that might might be? Why it didn't seem something that you would just sort of plunder? Well, I'm sure that I did plunder it, uh, but in in small pieces rather than in toto. Um, I suspect that I felt like I had either I had done the stories that took place in that world with the people playing and so there there wasn't anything else for me to do or that it, it belonged to all of us collectively in a sense and so I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to to, to use it um, yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting question I, I do I do quite like to move on and invent new worlds and explore them even though I often come back, come back to them. Uh, I come back to existing settings and characters and so on. Um, I, I do like to also move on to new ones. Uh, so it may have actually just it may have just been a reflection of of that. Um, that when I when, when I I came to to be seriously writing fiction, not not very long after that, to be honest. Uh, and I'd stopped playing D and D by then because. Uh, you know, people had moved, and, and I still did do some role playing, but it was far less frequent, uh, just because of all the usual things that go on in uh, in late teens and and so on, and studying and working and so on. Um, yeah, I think it probably just had its time, and I was I was ready to move on. But I, I'm curious. I must I must get out some of that material from the dreaded storage unit, and uh, if I can find it. And uh, and have a look and see what I what I have reused. To be honest, I've I've not looked at it for for decades. I think it would be I think it would be a, a fascinating um, to to see. Perhaps you know you might see the I guess the kind of seeds of things and go. Oh, oh I'm I, sure I, that kind of crypto amnesia where you forget something. You've I don't know if you've ever Absolutely. had it. Absolutely. Sorry. Go I on. have it all the time. No, I have it all the time. I know exactly what you're talking about. Where you where you where you've forgotten you've done something that you've created something. Uh, and the connections back to it. And actually just thinking about it, possibly the other thing is that I may have felt that elements of it were too derivative. So I didn't want to use them because I wanted to, to try and be more original. Because, of course, Dungeons and Dragons itself is very derivative of a certain kind of fantasy and of Tolkien and so on. So there's a sort of secondary, secondary world aspect there that perhaps I, uh, I, you know, I wanted to avoid. I think um, it's interesting what you were saying about feeling that you'd already... One of the possible reasons was that you'd already done it. Because I, I know to a lot of people outside who aren't writers, that always seems like they would say, well, yeah, I mean, you've 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 done it, right? You've done the work. Why wouldn't you just kind of put a bow on it and, and sell it? But it just reminded me of when I was speaking to the author, uh, Gareth L. Powell, and he said he he had a go at he's more of a kind of pants seat of the pants writer than a plotter, but he had a go at meticulously plotting a book before he wrote it and got out a spreadsheet and kind of, you know, really, really laid out all the plot beats. 
And when he came to write it, he felt like he he quickly found he could he didn't feel like he could because he said he felt like he was typing up someone else's work rather than <laughs> writing. You know, he'd already he'd already done it. He'd already done the story and satisfied that, and he was ready to write something else. And and that it, it just reminded me of what you were saying there that you kind of that there's this kind of little part of writing is about that buzz of being dragged through it by wanting to know exactly how and what happens. For sh- absolutely. I mean, everyone's different. I mean, some people love that detailed planning and, and sticking to the plan and, and they don't need that that frisson of not knowing what's what's going to happen. Um, so I think there is, an el- there is an element of that and I can certainly understand uh, Gareth feeling, like, oh, well, I've done all this work, but now it's kind of done. I'm not interested anymore. Um, uh, I, I can a- empathise with that. Yeah, I, it's it's an interesting thing. I'm not sure with with that that Dungeons and Dragons world what um, what what uh, the motivation was there. I, I do think I probably felt like that was a D and D world, and if I was going to come back to it, it would be to do D and D things, and it was separate from from writing fiction. So you said that it wasn't that long after that you really kind of got into I don't want to say writing fiction properly because when you were 5 you were writing fiction properly I don't you know <laughs> yes. like a, no 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 I know exactly what you mean uh, perhaps more consciously yeah uh, or yeah. or more or more consciously as as a, uh, as a vocation I guess um I I started seriously writing when I was 19 and in fact, I was travelling in the United Kingdom. I, I left school and I worked for a year. I'd always planned to take some time off before going to university. And I worked for a year, a very boring civil service job. And I saved my money and then I went travelling for a year, mostly in the UK and, and Europe. And during that time, uh, I was 19. Uh, I turned 20 when I, was, when I was in the UK. And I bought a... I came to London and I bought a... Austin 1600, terrible car, drove around everywhere. Um, you know, the wheel fell off once, it, it actually caught fire once. Um, <laughs> all the sort of usual Australian backpacker things. Possibly unusually, one of the things I did was I bought and reread a lot of my favourite children's, not all fantasy novels, but favourite children's novels, uh, and read them in the places where they were set. Wow. So uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe on Hadrian's Wall, Eagle of the Ninth, uh, Arthur Ransom in the Lake District and wow. the Broads. That's a Dickens in London. It's not all children's books, actually, because there was Dickens as well. Um, so I was travelling around, staying in youth hostels, reading, 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 and I decided to write a book. Uh, and I did. I wrote half a fantasy novel. <laughs> those fatal words half a novel <laughs> um and and um in the course of that process i thought this is what i want to do uh i want i want to be a writer i want to i want to write books particularly but but i also wrote some short stories um and when i got back to australia i thought i'd actually also read quite a lot about writing and publishing because i was very interested in the business of of publishing and, and writing as well as as actually the, the art of it, um, which I, is probably a saving grace in many ways. 
because I realised even when I even when I was twenty, um, I realised that the, the economics of, of writing do not favour you know the author having a happy life as a rule, um, and I I would need a day job, and I could get a better day job if I had a degree, uh, a better paid and more, more you know more um, appealing day job, and so I thought well I need to get a I need to get a degree, even though I'm going to keep writing. Um, I, I need something so I can get a better class of day job. And uh, luckily for me, around that time, and it hadn't been running for very long, there was a writing degree in Canberra at the univer- what, was, what became the University of Canberra. It was called the Canberra College of Advanced Education at that time. And it was the only one in the whole of Australia. I mean, every university in Australia has a writing degree now, or several probably, uh, but it was the only one... Uh, at the time, and that was my hometown, and so I, I went and did that and studied uh, mainly screenwriting, and but which which was actually very very good training, um, and so I did a, I did a degree while I was actually writing another book uh, because that half novel that I wrote uh, I I abandoned and I and I shouldn't have I had not yet learned the lesson that you have to finish stuff. Uh, that that's possibly the most important thing is actually just finishing things because with a finished manuscript you create possibility but you can't have half a possibility um, and, I, and I looked at it not many years ago and it it wasn't good but it wasn't terrible so possibly I could have got started even earlier if I'd uh, if I'd continued with with that novel um, but anyway I didn't uh, but in the course of my my writing degree I wrote half of what became my first published book, The Ragwitch, um, and I kept writing it after I finished the degree. I had, in fact, learned something by then. Um, <laughs> it took me several years after after finishing my degree to... And I, I was working in publishing, uh, that better that better standard of day job. Um, possibly not. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, but, but I was enjoying it. And... Um, and that that was that was the beginning of it. Yeah, really, I think that that trip, that time I spent uh, driving around, reading, uh, writing, just staying in youth hostels, revisiting the places where those books were set. I mean, the the weird stuff, Brisingerman in Cheshire, and so on, and you know, walking all over the place and traveling with different people at different times. Who some some who thought I was very strange you know working working away um tapping away on my typewriter because we're talking a long time ago um i was very sad that i i didn't keep that typewriter i was so broke at the end that i actually had to sell it to uh, get the bus fare to heathrow i had i had a i had a ticket home but i couldn't (laughs) i actually totally run out of money and uh, so i so i had to i had to actually actually pawn the typewriter. In oh, a that's, a bet- that's a better you know. story, though. Surely, that's great. Uh, no, I would. I wish I had that typewriter still because um, it is the typewriter that I I typed the first story I sold on. Um, it just would have been nice. To, it's. I mean, it's just a thing, and obviously, I don't. I've had so many you know, different computers, and uh, and and actually, I had several typewriters after that one as well. But it still would have been nice to to bring that one home. But I just. I was just so broke that it had to go. 
I, it, that's, uh, but it's out there. You know, it went out there, and maybe somebody yeah, else who knows? kind of like yeah. got a bit of your your sort of hard work kind of rubbed off on them or something. I don't know. Well, let's see. Yes, do you make the the writing tool? Does it become yeah. numinous in its own way or something? Mm. But so, can you just talk a bit about? You said you worked in publishing a bit before you got before you got your first. Um, before oh no! Well, during, during I, I continued in I continued in publishing for many years, um, so I was I was right. I had a parallel career, both writing and in publishing for many years. Um, how was so, how was that? Because I I mean, in my head, having not worked in publishing, um, you know, going and doing maybe maybe this just just shows me to be an incredibly selfish and petty human being but I, I would imagine it would feel a bit like being the ghost at the feast right like you're taking all these books and you're um other people are writing and you're helping uh find those books home and uh, homes and getting people excited about them um but until your book came out i i would imagine that that would be a slightly conflicting thing maybe maybe it's not but um what what was it like that's an interesting point. I, I think to some degree it is the nature of writers to feel like the ghost at the feast, no matter what's happening, um, <laughs> because there's, there's always other things going on. I think it's a very important lesson uh, to not compare yourself to what else is going on and how others are doing. I think that's, uh, that's a very dangerous thing, which I, I do see sometimes um, in particularly beginning writers there's a sort of corrosion of the soul because uh because other people who you who you've come up with and have been a peer of have accelerated away or you know things have happened for them that have not happened to you and i think i think that is a danger um and it's important i think to to you know be grateful for what is happening as opposed to worrying about what isn't um, but in terms of no i i love publishing um i started as a bookseller and i I really enjoyed being a bookseller, but uh, it was probably good that I had to move on because the owners of the bookshop that I worked at sold the store, uh, which is the secret of success in bookselling, of course, is to actually own the real estate. Um, it's the only way you can make money. Um, so after many years, they, 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 I, mean, I, only, I only worked for them quite briefly, but they sold up and retired and we all had to move on. And uh, that forced me to 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 get another job. Um, I think I would have probably stayed in bookselling for much longer, which might have been fine. I mean, I was writing as well, uh, but I did enjoy then moving into publishing on the on the on the publishing side, not the bookselling side. First as a sales rep, which was very educational, um, seeing what bookshops did or did not want to order. Uh, and the small publisher I worked for, it was mostly did not want to order. Um, but, you know, it was, it was very educational. Uh, and then I moved into editorial as an editorial assistant. But I worked initially for an academic publisher. Uh, so not, not the sort of things that I, I wanted to do anyway. Uh, but eventually I did move to HarperCollins Australia and I was a senior editor there. And I worked across many different books. Um, across, I was a sort of troubleshooting editor I suppose I, I worked across all areas of of the company so I did adult fiction and non-fiction and children's fiction and non-fiction and everything under the sun um, unfortunately sometimes I, I think it was 
Uh, this author's quite difficult. Garth can deal with them. Um, <laughs> that's not. I've worked with some absolutely wonderful authors, but uh, there's, there's a little bit of that went on as well. Um, and that that was that was actually great. I mean, my first book had come out by that stage, uh, The Ragwitch, but um, I, I had no problems. I love continuing to learn about publishing and helping other people, uh, helping other authors with, with their books, uh, trying to do the best that I could for them. I still feel slightly guilty. There's, there's one book in particular that had a terrible cover and every now and again I'll see one in a second-hand bookstore, even this is 20 years, 25 years later, and I see that cover and I think, I should have just gone one more round with that uh, that cover committee <laughs> just to just to not have that cover. It is so terrible. Um, so there's a there's a few things where I I certainly did not achieve what I what I hoped to, um, but I, I I left being an editor uh, and went travelling again. And when I came back, um, I had I'd actually written Sabriel, which um, was the sort of foundation of of my success in many ways, um, and I had that ready to go. And I thought, I don't want to go back into publishing. I'm tired of being poor. I'm tired of being badly paid. What else can I do? And I looked around and I, and I still wanted to write, but I thought, okay, I'm really, I'm going to upgrade my day job. And to cut a long story short, I ended up working for a public relations and marketing company, uh, partially as a writer, but I also looked after clients and so on. Um, but they took me on on the strength of my ability to to, to write uh, and to to write quickly about absolutely anything, essentially. And I had that experience, which many people who've left publishing have, where I had my interview and they were impressed that I had a published book and I wrote some stuff for them and they were impressed by that. And then the managing director said to me, you know, we'd love you to come on board, but you know, we're just getting started. It's a young company. We can only afford to pay you X. And X was twice what I was paid <laughs> as a senior editor at HarperCollins. <laughs> and so, and he, then he quickly added, but we've got a bonus scheme. And uh, I, I knew vaguely that publishing was badly paid, but I'd not realised uh, how verdant the fields were elsewhere. But of course, that's just about the money. Uh, on the money side... It was very good on the job satisfaction side. It wasn't. Uh, but I did that for quite a few years and, in fact, ended up with my own firm I was a partner in. Um, but uh, there came a point where, um, I guess about five years later, where the books were taking off in America and I could, I could be a full-time writer. So I took the plunge and, uh, and, and left, left that business. Um, simply because writing was always far more interesting and satisfying to me and I couldn't keep balancing the two. So I I had to make a choice. And of course, I'm very aware of how lucky I was then and how fortunate I am now to have been able to keep doing it for 18 years uh, because really very few writers actually get to be full-time if they want to and it's not always the the best thing either uh and in fact the first time I went I became a full-time writer 
Um, I actually went back to work part-time afterwards as, as a literary agent with, with Curtis Brown Australia because I had lost all structure to my life. And in the year, my first year of writing full-time, which was 1998, I did less work. I, I wrote less than any other year of my whole writing career because I went from being so incredibly busy in the PR business and then writing on, the, on top of that to thinking, well, I'll do it tomorrow. I've got all the time in the world. So you, you, know, you have to be careful what you, what you wish for sometimes. Uh, and then, but then when it, a few years later it came around again where I, again, I couldn't balance uh, the, the two things, uh, even being a part-time agent and uh, and it wasn't the writing; it was the it was the demands of modern marketing, essentially, uh, in terms of touring and so on. I just I couldn't do, I couldn't say to my clients, "I'm sorry, I can't read your manuscript. I'm going on tour for my own book." Yeah. As, as a you know, as an agent, that's that's not something you can do. Uh, but again, I love that job as well. I mean, book book selling, selling books to readers, and selling books to publishers. So as a bookseller or as an agent, my, my two favourite parts of, of publishing, I, I think by far, and I, I still, I still like both those things. I would still, I kind of had sort of daydream of, of being able to do a little bit of both of those, but it really is just a daydream. So can that? I mean, that's a. It feels to me like your professional experience in those fields was like it was like a, an adult professionalised. Uh, mirror of this childhood experience of having uh, a library on your doorstep and then reading widely and kind of being exposed to fields that maybe you uh, weren't obviously what you were going to be writing about. Um, I just wanted to ask, I know you've talked about it an, you know, an awful lot, so please feel free to sort of... Uh, <laughs> breeze past it if, it if 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 you're sort of slightly losing the will to live when I bring it up but I would I'd love I just for people who haven't read it who don't uh and because you know you've continued it's then you know it's continued for you know all the years after um I'd I, I was wondering if you could just touch on uh Sab Sabriel briefly and just just a quick like what it's about for people who haven't read it because of course then you continued that series in the years that have followed um while writing other things and i just it just seems to me like it was it it was quite a, a sort of turning point for you sure i mean it was my second published book um though in fact i i my first book the rag which came out in 1991 and then Sabriel was first published in 95 in Australia and then 96 in the US. It didn't, didn't actually come to the UK until 2001 uh, for publishing territorial reasons. Um, and I should say, you know, for the, I guess for the benefit of, of those writers listening, I think it's important to note that um, I actually wrote a book in between The Ragwitch and Sabriel that no one wanted so no published. It's never been published. So I had my first book published. And it was it was okay. It did did reasonably well, but it wasn't a huge success. And then I wrote another book, and no one wanted it. So I could have just stopped there, and you certainly wouldn't be talking to me, and no one would be interested. I'd just be someone who wrote one book many many years ago. But I I didn't stop. I I kept going, and I think this is another important lesson: is you know, sort of being too dumb to quit. You just have to keep going. Um, and Sabriel, 
uh, was a story that I can't tell, you know, where it came from. There's, there's certain elements of it that I can sort of identify uh, the inspiration, but I don't know where it came from. Um, but it's a story of uh, essentially of a young woman who's grown up in uh, in a school in a in a country rather like sort of nineteen twenty England or Australia or America. It's really much more English. Uh, has a sort of World War One level of technology and so on. Uh, but she has actually come from a country to the north, which is divided, separated from uh, this this 1920-ish England uh, by a wall. Um, and I always hasten to add that uh, it's important to note Sabriel came out a year before the first Game of Thrones book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because, uh, but, but of course, there are numerous walls in various uh, fantasy novels, not just... Um, well, I was thinking about, you said during your journey around England, you went to visit Hadrian's, Hadrian's Wall, Wall. Right? That's, and that's certainly an inspiration and one of the things was actually a photo that I saw of Hadrian's Wall uh, not on that visit but later which showed uh, a sort of green lawn on the southern side of the wall and snow on the northern side and it, and it looked like there was summer on one side and winter on the other uh, and in Sabriel the two places, the Old Kingdom to the north of the wall and Anselstier to the south of the wall are effectively different universes. Uh, the seasons are different when you cross the wall. The time is different. Uh, you can you can cross from autumn into winter or winter into into spring. Um, and the other major aspect of the old kingdom is that the dead come back, and death is a place that uh, can actually be entered as well. So in a, in a way, the book is set in three places: and Celestier with its nineteen twenty ish World War One technology. Uh, the Old Kingdom, which has uh, the, the dead returning and, and death as a place that you can go to. And there are nine precincts of death and nine gates. And magic works there. There's several different kinds of, of magic that work there. And Sabriel is from the Old Kingdom and she's been put sent to school in Anselstair to keep her safe by her father. And her father is called the Abhorson. And his role is to make sure the dead stay dead. He's kind of an anti-necromancer. Well, he is a necromancer, but his role is to is to put the dead to rest rather than to, to raise them. And, and Sabriel, because she's been brought up in the South, she has been trained by her father remotely. Uh, and she has a sort of intellectual understanding of what he does and of the magic that he uses. Uh, but she doesn't she doesn't have a sort of visceral understanding of it. And the story begins when uh, she receives a dead messenger from him at the school, uh, scaring the life out of everybody, who brings the seven bells that are used by the Abhorsons and by necromancers, seven bells that are used to bind and command the dead. And his sword, and she knows something's happened to him, something has happened to him, and uh, so she has to go back to the old king to find out what's what's happened and uh, and bad things have happened and the old kingdom's in a, a state of disarray and has been for a long time and she's drawn into an, an adventure there. Um, it's always hard to talk about books, I think, and sort of describe them. I, I always think it's probably better to to grab a copy and read the first few pages or uh, have a look online at the first few pages. There's, there's so many other aspects to that book 
Uh, one of them, of course, is that the wall is uh, on the Ancilsterian side. The wall is uh, faced by the perimeter, which is a World War One trench line, uh, where manned by troops who try and stop things coming across the wall, dead things and free magic creatures and so on. But most of the time, their guns don't work on those kinds of creatures or, or fail to work, particularly when the wind is from the north. Um, and I guess another aspect of when I was writing that novel is that I wanted to write, I've been thinking of a World War One story. I'm very interested in military history and in World War One, and my great-great-uncle was, was killed in 1916. Uh, most of my male relatives on both sides of the family had numerous people who fought there. And so I've been thinking about a World War One story, but I, I couldn't write it. I, I didn't have the technical ability to write it. And my sort of thinking about that World War One story ended up being infused into this fantasy story of these these two these two countries, the one where tech, the technology and one with magic, and also the sort of futility of a distant command making men in trenches fight against things that their weapons are useless against and they're just all going to die. Um, so there's things like that uh, were in the making of the story. I really get that sense now, now that you've said it, of um, commanders who have a basically a paradigm for what an enemy d- does and how you fight that doesn't in any way um, fit the war that they're potentially or the threat they're going to be facing. I, I never saw that before, even though, like you say, the, the tech levels are the same. And it, it strikes me that actually a lot of modern, a lot of fantasy maybe in general, but especially a lot of modern fantasy is about sort of processing i mean this is a very pretentious way of looking at it but like processing i guess like cultural traumas and making sense of stuff i I just think of all the kind of like uh japanese rpgs and anime and manga and stuff that has um a society that has been destroyed by a, a great energy that was sort of built up it, it industrialized rapidly and then there was a cataclysm and now it's reindustrializing again and that old energy has been rediscovered and the children um who never lived through that first cataclysm are having to face it um and the same with tolkien you know like him really writing about his first world war experience i was actually just going to mention tolkien and i think tolkien was a very big influence on me as well uh, and perhaps not an obvious one. Um, I, I agree with you. I think there's an awful lot of of uh, d- distant allegorical fantasy in, in the sense that it's not overt and quite often the, probably the author's not aware of it themselves, which in many ways is the best kind <laughs> because you don't want it to be too overt and hitting you over the head with, with its, uh, with its uh, allegorical meaningfulness. Um, but, but yeah, t- I think Tolkien was a very big influence on me, even though reading Sabriel and reading the, the sequels, and you can say Sabriel or Sabriel, by the way, um, I flip-flop myself. Um, people, it's probably one of the most commonly asked questions that, that, uh, that I get is, you know, how do you pronounce the names in, in your books? Uh, I would say however you like. Um, however you hear it in your head is fine by me. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Tolkien's a very big influence um, in terms of emotional themes, I think, more than 
uh, sort of top level content. I mean, I don't have dwarves and elves and so on. As many many fantasy writers, you can look at it and say, well, that's very obviously influenced by Tolkien, but the influence that that they've taken is is uh, is very much a sort of scraping of, of of the look and feel. Whereas I I'd like to think that. Uh, what I've taken from Tolkien is probably more of an emotional resonance, uh, particularly in terms of uh, you know the, the whole Lord of the Rings, uh, to a degree, is about the cost of doing the right thing. It's actually the cost of the cost to individuals of doing what must be done for the sake of society, and that's Frodo's story, uh, and that he doesn't get to enjoy. Uh, the benefits of of what he's gained for everybody else, which again is also a World War One story, and of course, um, and of and course, sure. his great secret, which is is actually never passed on. No, people don't know that he doesn't like that he does that in his moment when no one else is looking. Right, he fa- he fails. He ge- he he does a bat, and I I you know I think about how many soldiers you know come ho- came home as like heroes and had lived through all this horrible thing but also you know in a moment where there's just them and like one an, an enemy like in one place or in these quiet moments did something that they privately see as shameful you know gave in ran away hid during a a charge you know sure yeah pr- probably all of them to be honest you know i mean unless they were psychopaths uh, probably all of them or, or the great majority would have, would have had those experiences and I think that's another that's that's another aspect of it, um, but of course he also did everything to get it to that point. So uh, he he still triumphed even though he failed at the last. Um, there's there's a lot of things going on. I must read them again. Actually, I was just thinking I, it's been quite a long time, and I do re I reread Tolkien quite a lot, and I I was very fortunate to be able to get into the Tolkien exhibition at Oxford. A few weeks ago, um, when I was in the UK, and that 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 really re-energized my my desire to reread Lord of the Rings. So I must I must get it out actually. Um, I wanted to I, I wanted to just start the one thing that I this is going to be like I can't help this question coming out as sycophantic, but one thing that I was reading when when I was reading uh, Sabriel and I there was just a couple of moments where I was like oh my god. Oh my gosh, wow. And those were when you just, when something doesn't need describing, you just cut forward to the next interesting part where action's happening again. And I was like, oh, I thought we were going to have a laborious description of how this thing that we know is going to happen, happens successfully. But you just jump forward and go, okay, we're, we're moving on. And then I'd like go, oh, well, that's great. That's great. Now with the story... Oh, we're just at the next interesting bit. Oh, thank... And I, for me, I was kind of stunned. Um, I think maybe it's just also having an expectation that in fantasy, we're always going to be going the long way round. But your pacing is mind-blowingly good. And I wondered if you could touch on that a little bit, how you... I, this is a basically why are you so good question. You'll feel to bat it away with modesty if you like. <laughs> but if you could talk a little bit about pacing in your books, because I think it is something, uh, I think it's definitely something that 
is a incredible strength and a, and something that I know so many writers struggle with. So I wondered if you could touch on that because it feels to me like the editor in you is alive and 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 a powerful force for good. Uh, <laughs> well, you're very kind. Thank you. Um, it's a very interesting question uh, because I'm not. I actually feel my editorial editorial brain is quite separate in some ways and it comes into play after I've written, not sort of enduring having written. Uh, but I do revise a great deal. Um, and I think part of achieving the pacing is often, uh, often comes from the trimming back that, that I would do. But I also think it probably comes from what I was talking about right at the beginning and in terms of equipping yourself to be a writer in that all the thrillers that I've read um, and I love thrillers I love really active stories uh, so to be honest it probably it probably comes from a, uh, a teenage a teenage years of not just reading fantasy and science fiction but also reading Alistair MacLean and Desmond Bagley and uh, all these sort of thriller guys from from that period and uh, um, and very direct writers i mean and a lot mind you a lot of a lot of uh fantasy and science fiction from the 60, 50s, 60s, 70s is also of of that ilk and I, and I think the the difficulty there is you can go too far in the pacing and not have anything else, so getting that that balance right is 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 very hard to do. Um, but but a lot of it I think is 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 instinct. Um, I'm I'm always driven by what I what I like to read. Um, if I'm finding it boring writing it, then probably the reader will as well. So I I try and engage myself. Um, I, I think that's 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 the driving force, and it's always my acid test is 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 this something I I want to read? Do I want to stay with this this story and and move forward, but I, I, and I guess the other aspect of that is that I also visualise scenes, and then I, I visualise them as I'm writing them, and 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 try and work out what makes sense, in in terms of of that scene, uh, not just what I want to happen. I, I'm not sure. I'm no, I, I, I get it well. exactly. I I I I, t- I think I'm hearing from what you're saying in that last thing that um. It's like the difference between you have a plan of what's going to happen in a scene. Maybe you've written it down. You're going to say in this scene, they come. she comes in, sees the thing on the table, steals it. But when you're actually down in the scene and you kind of look around your imagined room, you go, well, hang on. What that doesn't feel logical or emotionally true. And you have to make a decision what the character is. What's the most reasonable thing for the character to do in that scene? Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. Um, you you get to that imagined room and she's meant to steal the thing from the table, but actually it makes no sense for it to be there. So, what's going on? Um, you have to you have to then work out what happens, or or, or just to make it more interesting that some something else is going on. But that 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 that's absolutely it, um, and that's why even though I do write chapter outlines, uh, when you look at my chapter outlines, and then look at the book, you think what the hell, <laughs> because. The books never bear much resemblance to the chapter outlines. Um, it's quite interesting to go back and look at them sometimes. When I mean, there is one for Sabriel, for example, uh, which is broken down by chapters, but 
very little of uh, very little of it actually conforms with the finished book. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a chapter about the raft people, for example, which I was looking at it fairly recently, thinking, what was I thinking? What were the raft people? What was that about? Because yeah, it's not you know it's, it's not in the book at all. Uh, <laughs> and it's a, there's a paragraph in that chapter outline, but it, it makes no sense because none of the things. None of the earlier chapters I followed either, so you know it all builds up to start. None of it's there, so it is quite interesting. But it's still quite helpful to do it, uh, even though I don't follow the chapter outlines. I quite like doing them, even though I don't follow them. Uh, just as, just as seems to be a good process uh, in in working out stuff. Some of which you will do, most of which you won't, um, but. But the whole exercise is useful. I, I, I was going to say, I, because I don't mean to, for people who haven't read um, your work, and I will I will warn listeners that when Garth says, oh, I think the best thing is just to look at a couple, first couple of pages, that's a trap, right? That's a trap. Like, you're, that's a trick. If you read them, you will lose... You will lose weeks of your life to reading these books as you dive but into the world. But, 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 but don't you think that's true of any good book? You could say that of any good book and and, and then you're away. That's one of the great things. I, I, I love picking up a book and reading the first few pages and knowing that I want to stay. I want to it's stay. I want to be thing. in this book. It's, the, it's so it's, good, it's isn't fantastic. it? It's fantastic. When you just go... I just... I love it. If I read like one or two pages of something and I just have that thought, okay, I'm in. You've got me. I'm in. Yeah, like it's yeah. a lovely feeling, and you can just kick back and yeah. And that is also the industry test, basically, as well. I mean, as an editor and as an agent, that's what I would I would also do, and it's what what they all do, is that you read the first few pages, and either it works or it doesn't, and and you you either you read the first two pages, and it goes in a pile that's reject. Sometimes a much smaller pile that says someone else needs to look at this or maybe I need to look at it again. And then one in a thousand is you just keep reading <laughs> and you don't stop. And then you then you sign them up as soon as possible. So um, is it, it all right? It's all about those. Sorry, I was going to say, can we drill down into this a little bit? Because if I don't ask you a little bit more about this, about the this feeling of like when you read the first couple of pages, this is the industry test and go, okay, I'm in. If I don't ask you a bit more about this, then when this episode goes out i'm gonna wake up with a horse head on my pillow next to me Uh, (laughs) what can you think i wonder if you i could just ask you to elaborate a little bit on some of the things i mean i know it's very personal but like some of the things you as a you know as an editor but also as a reader and as a writer uh, have to happen for you in those first couple of pages um or for you to get get that feeling of like i'm in well, interestingly, it's, it is a very difficult thing to pin down because it can be so utterly different uh, across different books. Um, I think what it boils down to is it doesn't matter what's happening on the page. It doesn't matter how you're doing it. It's actually all about the voice that's present. And that, that can be created in so many different ways. It's that feeling of, of being drawn into, into a story told a particular way that you, you, you want to go with it. And that could be, and it, it, that can be done in so many different ways. I mean, it could be 
Uh, it could be a, you know, a first-person narrative and you, you actually literally like the voice. It could be a description of something really fascinating and it's just that description is, has been done so well and is so interesting that you, you need to know more about it. It can be a setting. It can be the beginning of a scene. Uh, it, can, it can be dialogue. I mean, it's impossible to pin down you know, what it is and in the same way, if you looked at your 10 favourite books and you looked at the first three pages of your 10 favourite books, they'd all be utterly different. Um, but it, it's something about, perhaps it's the authority of the voice, where you know you're in good hands, you know that, that this, this is a real book, this is a real story, it feels like it's real somewhere. And that's, that's what I, I love about really good books, is they actually feel real. They, they feel that they're actually happening somewhere. And and you're you're being privileged to to access that, and I think that that's what what editors and and and, and agents look for is is that is that immediate um, that immediate immersion into into the story, the world, the character. You know, however you're you're going into the story, however you're accessing it, that you're immediately there, and. And, and in an assured way, but it it is a very difficult thing to talk about. Um, I sometimes describe the business of publishing, well, the business and art of publishing, as being like a mystery a mystery cult, and we're all kind of initiates of a mystery cult, and it's so mysterious none of us really know how it works. But we we go through certain rituals and certain things tend to work, so we repeat them. Um, but we don't really understand them or even understand what, what we worship, but we know it when we see it. Um, I, I don't know if, that, yeah, if that's Yeah, no, making, I think so that's, I, that's I'm, amazingly I'm, useful, actually. And I, I, I think, I mean, what and what a use and what an incredibly practical exercise, right? Find your 10 favourite books and reread the first three pages and see if there's anything that, that you know, and get a sense of that feeling. Absolutely, and I, and I and I think I mean that is another aspect of why books work, is that the most successful books uh, have a transfer of emotion. So it's how you feel when you're reading the book, and particularly how you feel when a book ends. That is often what stays with you, and is what you you want other people to have as well, even though you may not talk about it because you don't know how to talk about it typically people talk about what a book is about but actually the reason they want to talk about it is because of how it made them feel so i think that's always worth bearing in mind but i guess going back to the beginnings of books is if you don't have that 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 attractive immersive feeling in your first few pages then you probably need to think about where your story's starting or, or how you've started the story, how you've found your way into the story, because I mean that's a very common thing to get wrong, uh, but it's still also totally fixable. In that maybe you've just started in the wrong place. I mean, this is this is a screenwriting thing where you know they always say start the story at the latest point possible, you know as far into the story as you can. And I don't believe in those sort of hard and fast rules because. There's so many different ways to do everything. You could do everything totally against every writing advice ever told, and you still write a great book. Uh, it's just probably harder. Um, so now there is no one way to do anything. But 
I, I do think it's those first few pages are so important that that they uh, you know it bears looking at how they work and and how you enter the story and sometimes you enter the story you know too late and you've got to go back and start it a bit earlier and sometimes you need uh, you need to tack on a prologue or or whatever to to make the whole story work. I mean that's another thing that always makes me laugh is all this advice but you can't have prologues. <laughs> you know, it's like it's totally ridiculous. You can't have a prologue that doesn't work, but it, because it doesn't work. But but of course, a prologue that does what it's supposed to do is is a great thing. Uh, but not all stories need them. Some do, some don't. Uh, so. There, there is no one size fits all, and I think everyone should always be very suspicious of, uh, of people who, who tell them this is how you write a novel, or you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't do that. Uh, it, it is a mystery cult, and uh, maybe there's some other branch of the mystery that does everything totally different. You just have you just have to find it for yourself. I think that's that's great advice. And like your prologues, yeah, exactly. Like a prologue, if you, it's such a. I'm so glad you said that because I I, I feel <laughs> I actually like breathed a sigh of like oh thank you like now we can move <laughs> on can we from like this whole thing of people going don't write prologues and it's like well, write prologues that work and I'm like yeah oh great thank you now I have a rebuttal to that yeah because like if a prologue is you just hand the reader like seven bulging suitcases and say you're going to need this and all you you will it won't make any sense unless you take this and or you'll need to carry this and you kind of like load them up and go now you're ready to have your adventure and they're kind of quivering under the weight of all these uh exposition bags you've kind of like heaped on them they might be i'm not sure i'm ready well they're not they're not going to go on the adventure are they because it's, it's too bloody boring to start with um, but, but I think that's the problem that people have with prologues is that they're often used in the wrong way, um, which has led to this, all prologues are, are, are terrible. Um, I think that's where it comes from. But it's like anything else. It's, uh, you know, don't use semicolons. <laughs> it's just ridiculous advice that you get. And don't, I mean, which, which pervades all, all areas of publishing. I mean, you have this you know, green... You know, green covers don't sell, for example, or, or blue ones, or or these various accepted pieces of wisdom that turn out to be completely wrong, uh, and they're, but they're, they're they're often based on particular examples that that have led people to draw general conclusions from from something very specific. Uh, yeah, oh, it's, yeah, it's absolutely, and I'd say like when you talk about the opening of, of books as well, it's sometimes you're not qualified to write the beginning of your novel until you've written the ending right until you've written that first draft and you know what it's about and then you can come back and go oh actually all of this bit I've while I'm writing my way into the world that becomes clear later on that you don't need to know it quite yet so let's just start with the bit where the train um comes off the bridge yeah absolutely I mean I I quite often in my sort of beginning stages of working out a novel I will write a beginning which may be a prologue or it may be the first chapter but it, they don't always end up in the book uh, because I write them to work out for myself the tone of of the story, of of the 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 style I'm going to use in this book and sometimes the character and the setting and often it's just an exercise that uh, while it, it works and it's fine, I don't need it in the book, but I do need to do it to work out what the what this book is going to be, what the book feels like. 
Um, and sometimes, of course, they do end up in the book as well. It just it just depends. But it's 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 an exercise that enables me to find the sort of emotional heart of it. And uh, even if even though I'm not really going to draw on it until much later in the book, at least I can sort of work it out. Um, and I find that useful. But uh, often I will, as you just said, I will write a lot of the book and then come back and, and rewrite the beginning or in fact sometimes write a whole new, be- uh, write a new beginning or write a prologue that wasn't there in the first place. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious that... Uh... Uh, you know, there's. Uh, <laughs> I'm very conscious that I don't want to uh, keep you too long, and I'm really enjoying this conversation. So I just wanted to just move along to a couple of things that I really wanted to uh, hit before we finish. Um, and thank you so much. It's. I feel like I'm. Well, I am literally learning so much, and it's really useful to hear you reflect on these things and give your own experiences and stuff. Um, I know that people are going to have found. Uh, your advice really really helpful i i know again i know this is a question you've been asked a lot but i just wondered if you could uh, reflect on it briefly which is you know you've been writing and you maybe the experience is different from your side but you seem to me to be very prolific um like really intimidatingly pr- prolific um <laughs> I, I you know as you know like i say perhaps it's perhaps your experience is, is very different um but I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about whether you've you you said initially when you uh, quit your day job and, and was writing full time you did le- less writing than you'd ever done before. Um, however, you have managed to write books, and I was wondering if you could share um, some of your experience of what's worked for you in terms of how you actually g- get them done, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of nuts and bolts of it. Well, I think it's it's. I mean, I've been a full time writer the last eighteen years, which is an enormous help in in getting lots of work done, uh, and and having many books. Uh, and I've been writing for thirty years uh, overall. So uh, it's not. I don't. I don't see myself as being particularly prolific, but I am certainly steady. Um, but I think. It's important to note that I wrote my first dozen books while I had very busy day jobs. And what I used to do is I would write two nights a week for three or four hours a night. And so I'd start at eight and I'd work till midnight, say. And I'd do that two nights a week religiously. And I would write every Sunday afternoon for probably about six hours, six or seven hours. And I would do that religiously as well. So if you do that and you stick to that, you can have a very busy day job and you can still have other life as well. Um, You've still got half your weekend uh, and you'll still be able to write a book every year. Uh, So my, my first dozen or so books were written in that way with very busy day jobs and just being very rigorous about keeping to that schedule. When I was first able to be a full-time writer as I said I did practically nothing because I lost I lost that schedule because I said oh well I've got tomorrow to do it I don't need to write Tuesday and Thursday nights and Sunday afternoon because I'm a full-time writer I can just do it whenever and I but I didn't do it I just sort of stuffed around and you know played computer games and went out and you know did things and uh, and just 
kept saying, well, you know, I've still got time. I can write quickly. I know that I can write consistently. I'll just sort of restart my routine. But I didn't for months. And, and then I had to actually go back to work to get, get that, to get the beginning of a structure to build my writing structure around. And then the next time I, uh, the next time I went full time, I was aware of this issue and I just made sure that I was very, I, I established a schedule uh, and, and I kept to it. One of the things I've been fortunate enough to do or fortunate enough to be able to do is that I have a separate office from my home, uh, which is about 10 minutes walk away. I've actually had two, two different ones in the last sort of 15 years. Uh, and so I walk to the office. Uh, I spend the morning doing the sort of small business stuff that you need to do, which includes uh, you know, communication with agents and publishers and accounting and all, you know, and marketing stuff and answering Q&As and, you know, all, all the myriad stuff around being a, a widely published writer. Um, and then I and then I normally start working late in the morning uh, and I start sort of noodling around, normally by looking at what I've done the day before or in the last few days. Uh, when I'm writing a novel, I typically... Uh, start work by actually reading everything I've written before and fixing it up as I go along. So I will start at the beginning of the book again and I'll read through into where I'm up to. And this means that, you know, chapter one, I will probably have read and revised 50 times because I've start, I always start at the beginning and read through and I do read very quickly and not very carefully. So I need to do these multiple passes at, at this point. And then I, then I start again. Um, and that's that. That's my basic routine. And then I work until uh, sort of the early afternoon, three or four, and I come home. When my boys come home from school, um, and then towards the end of a book, I also start writing at night as well. So usually, when everyone else has gone to bed or is in the sort of process of of uh, of going to bed, as I have teenage boys now, that can be quite a long process. Uh, it goes much later than it used to, but I'll start. I'll start work at sort of nine thirty or ten thirty, and I'll work for a few hours, um, and that tends to get. More, I tend to do more and more of that as I am approaching the end, and I'm trying to maintain the momentum on a book. Uh, Is there any particular reason you think why, as you're getting towards the end, um, aside from presumably you have less writing time because you're having to read through the entire thing each time you start, but. Um, well, but I do that. I do that more and more, uh, more and more uh, loosely as I go on. I mean, I still do it, but I, I you know, I'm a very fast reader, and when I'm trying to read very fast, I, I go through very quickly indeed. So, um, you know, I, I will read it more carefully towards it. But I think it's about the sort of transfer of energy. Um, I'm more caught up in the story. I, the momentum's there. I want to keep working on it. I just I just want to be doing more of it. I mean, if it's working, um, sometimes the momentum, pardon me, the momentum stumbles, and uh, you know I have to leave things for a while. That that can also be, you know, a necessary thing. You need fallow time. Sometimes it's not working. Uh, you know, sometimes I've had to leave things for a few weeks. They've been you know barreling along. Everything's been great, and then I have a problem with it, and I need to leave it for a while. And sometimes when I come back, that means you know unstitching work that's already there. It means chucking out a chapter or or backtracking in some way. Um, that's 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 also part of it. Um, but but generally speaking, 
it takes me about 10% of the time to write the, the 50% of the book. The second half of the book takes about one-tenth of the time as the rest of the book takes. It it sounds like you you know you when you come to that towards the end you start it's like a it feels like it's almost like a hunt that you've got like kind of the books you've got like the kind of book scent and you're kind of like closing in on it and speeding up absolutely yeah yeah and you're encouraging you know all the hunters to ride with you and and uh and hopefully it's exciting and 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 and, and the energy is there and and fear and uh trepidation and and all, all these things um, there's that transfer of, of emotion and, and energy, which hopefully will then go back to the reader as well. Um, from what I'm hearing from you, I, I this may sound like a, a, a stupid or obvious question, but do you enjoy writing? <laughs> no, I think it's actually a very good question. Yeah, I, I do very much. Um, I don't, I don't always enjoy every aspect of it all the time. Um, but, I think actually enjoy is perhaps not even the right word. I love it. I love writing. I love telling stories. But as with anything you love, it's not entirely unalloyed because there are times where it's just sheer hard work knocking your head against the wall because it's not working. But you have to persist because, you know, I believe that I can make it work. And, and most of the time I can, though there are certain things I've written, particularly in short fiction, where I've not been able to make them work but I, I always believe that I will at some point. So I never give up anything entirely. I mean, I will stop working on it. I have stories where I've written half of them from 10 years ago, but I still think one day I'll come back and, and fix that up. Um, so, yeah, I, I love doing it. And um, I, I love the finish. I love finishing a story. I love finishing a book. And I like every aspect of it. And I, I love when they when it's all done and they turn up at your door. Uh, I've written lots of books and I still get super excited when a box of books turns up the first or the, you know, the first finished copies show up. It's still incredibly exciting uh, because, and I, and I still kind of can't believe it as well. And I hold one in my hand. I think bloody hell, I, I wrote this <laughs> and it's still, it's still an amazing feeling. And I think, um, I hope it continues to be, uh, I think if if it stops being exciting, uh, then maybe do something else. You know, it's uh, if 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 that if that love of what you're doing uh, has has totally gone, then um, maybe it's time to time to change trades or or have a rest because that as I said, sometimes you do need that fallow time. So there's been times where I've stopped writing for a while because I've I've just needed time to mentally regroup or let let ideas flower without doing anything with them. So I, I do believe in in fellow time and doing other things as well. But I think that's that's like anything else that you, that you love. You can't just be doing it all the time. My final question was going to be, you talked about going on this trip uh, around Britain and visiting all these locations that have been parts of stories that you'd cared about. And I was wondering, you get to do, you know, you get to, do a bit of travel now as part of promoting your books and stuff and I was wondering if there's anywhere you'd still like to to visit to uh, some location some place uh, maybe that's 
resonant of a story or somewhere that you'd like to go uh, as possible inspiration for a, a, a story yet to come that you've had knocking around. Um, I was wondering wondering if there was you you've got any sort of uh, places that you uh, that you'd still because it sounds like you're kind of like everything's got very you know it's it's kind of like a busy life busier life than it was then. I was wondering if there's anywhere you've still got yet to um, to visit. Well, yes, I have a I have a far busier life now, um, and I, I certainly couldn't have those months of uh, relative solitude just doing what I wanted to do. Um, I think everywhere I go is interesting. To be honest, I I find, and that includes just walking to the local shop. To be to be honest, I mean, there's always there are always small things that are of interest and that can provoke stories. Um, I mean, I, in fact, I just wrote a, a piece for a, a younger kid's book based on a bird that I just saw earlier today on the, on the behaviour of a parrot. You, know, you just never know what you'll, what you'll see. So I, I do find everywhere I go is, is interesting. Um, I actually wouldn't mind, and, and, and I've been lucky enough I've been able to do this a little bit, still revisiting some of those childhood favourites. Um, I was incredibly lucky to be invited to a conference at the University of Newcastle uh, year before last, a Hadrian's Wall conference. Um, and I got to walk along the wall with with some of the archaeologists from the university. And, uh, you know, it was a tremendous experience for me. Uh, so I can still cycle back to those childhood favourites as well. Uh, but, yeah, every, everywhere is interesting. I mean... Um, I'm actually working on a book at the moment that is set in a slightly alternate London in 1983, which is when I I, I was there. Uh, and in the course of writing that, I've realised I do still need to check out. Even it's you know, partly drawn from memory. It's partly drawn from research, uh, which includes watching old episodes of uh, Minder and the Professionals. <laughs> nice um, research. Yeah. <laughs> well, it actually is research, and partially I'm just looking at what's happening in the background. Um, and that's actually been very interesting because I'm looking at 1983, so I'm looking at at uh, well, my, some of the early episodes of Minder and the last episodes of The Professionals, which were, which were shot in 1982, um, just to some of the detail, some of the details of just ordinary life that I sort of half remembered, but I'd forgotten because. You need the small details to build up the reality of of the place. Um, so, but yes, uh, the kind of writer research that everyone thinks isn't actually research. Um, no, it was unfair. It was unfair. It was unfair of me because, like, when I was researching the honors, I was watching like old Will Hay films from the nineteen thirties, and of course they were fun to watch. But it was really useful. What I was actually waiting for was when someone like paid for a cab, how much they paid. Well, exactly. Yeah. And in fact, I've just been look, looking at looking at the flag fall on on cabs, and you know when they when they introduce the light on top, and things, you know, all these small things. Even though it's I'm, I'm hedging my bets by having a it's a slightly alternate UK. It's not exactly our world, um, so I could get away with some small things. But I still like to get all the small things right, even when I've changed some of the the, the bigger things. Um, but yeah, absolutely, you, you're you're looking for all all, all of these things. Um, 
but but I also realised there's still a few, uh, there's a few play and I'd hope when I was in London earlier to to look at a few key locations, uh, which I just needed to refresh my my memory of some minor details, and I wasn't able to for very you know I just didn't have time. So there's a few places like that where I think I do I I really would like to go and look at them, uh, you know, for purposes of a current story. Uh, though of course, you know, in this day and age, you know, Google Street View and so on is enormously helpful in, in that regard. Uh, in in trying to uh, you know to 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 look at places and so on, and whether it's refreshing memory or or in fact looking at somewhere I've never been. You've got all those technological aids, but it's still not quite the same as as walking around that place or or seeing what it smells like or or you know all all of all of those things. Oh, that sounds awesome. Well, I wish you all the best with that, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. I just I I'm gonna you know I'm gonna spend the rest of the day uh, slowly assimilating all these uh, wonderful things. Um, thank you so much. Oh. No, it's a pleasure, Tim, and good luck with the Ice House, which I think is out in March. Is it's, that right? It's, out, it's, it's, it's coming out in May, so yeah, it's yeah, it's on May. its way. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. It's um, it looks very, it looks very interesting. I have to say, thank you. It's so although it's got I'm a blue, it's got, a, it has got a blue cover. So um, when you mentioned that old publishing saw, well, no, I've um, no, we'll see whether it can finally break. Covers. Oh, okay, phew. Oh goodness. <laughs> no, it's mostly it's mostly green covers, but occasionally you get someone who says blue covers. It's like, well, what is it? Green. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's absolute nonsense either way so well well yeah. i you know maybe it maybe you know even so maybe it would break that ancestral curse uh <laughs> well let's hope so and um everyone who's listening of course i'm going to put links to uh, a, a bunch of uh, garth's novels um in the show notes i'm on my website tim claire poet so if you want to go and check them out um you can just click through one of those links i heartily recommend them of course um they're absolutely fantastic uh thanks everybody for listening and have a wonderful week of writing